1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 1. God's word says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the, lo- the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel from the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam raved over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you should not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Uh, You may have heard the city of New York will be electing a new mayor this fall. And the city, two candidates found themselves under a barrage of criticism. It all started rather innocently. The New York Times was interviewing them and asked them, how much does a house cost in Brooklyn? Well, two of them answered, probably about $100,000. 
Well, as you can imagine, that was not correct. The average price of a house in Brooklyn is $900,000. And as you can imagine, people were outraged. Comments of elite, rich, out of touch. How can people who don't understand the most basic thing of the challenges of New York City intend to be mayor over our city? Well, this morning we come to King Rehoboam, who seems equally out of touch with his people. They come with a concession, and he responds with partial rules. Yet while King Rehoboam is going to lead his nation into division and seeming chaos, we're going to see that beneath the surface, or reigning over top, is the king of kings who guides and directs every action. We may not always understand all that God allows, but God is never out of touch. So this morning, while we see chaos on earth, we will see control in heaven. If you have a bulletin, you can see how this unfolds in this chapter, because in verses 1 through 5, we're going to see the crisis. Then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see the council. Then in 12 through 19, there's the rebellion. And then lastly, and rather shortly, in verses 20 through 24, will be the return. So if you've been following along with us in this series, we have just seen King Solomon die, and now the nation gathers at Shechem to anoint Solomon's son, Rehoboam, to be king. And there they come, and they have a certain request. They say, look, your father Solomon had this heavy yoke upon us. The work was so hard, so would you lighten the load? Now, it's interesting who they had come do this. They had Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, because Jeroboam had a prophecy given to him in chapter 11, that one day he would become king over ten tribes of Israel. Now there's a not a direct parallel here, but there's some interesting comparisons between this story and Israel when they're in Egypt. Israel was suffering under bondage from oppressive masters. And what did God do? He raised up Moses to lead them out of bondage. Here, the Israelites again feel as though they are over or under oppressive masters. And God raised up Jeroboam, Though now he's coming out of Egypt to lead them out of bondage. And so they make this request, and what does Rehoboam do? He asks for three days. Go away for three days and come back to me. And so the story begins with a crisis. The crown hadn't even been properly fitted on Rehoboam's head, and already people are in an uproar. No matter what your role or situation, we will all have crises in life. They may come early, like they did with Rehoboam, or they may wait, but they all will come. Maybe a car accident, maybe a medical crisis, maybe family relationships, maybe a pandemic. Each crisis has its own challenges, and in every one of them, we need counsel. You have to first know the facts, what's going on. That's why Proverbs 18.15 declares, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 11, 14, and others counsel, When there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. You've read through Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, you come across the story in 1st Samuel 25, where David who's not yet king, wants some food for his men. And he sends his men to go to a man named Nabal to get some food. And David's men had always taken care of Nabal. 
and yet Nabal won't give food, and he attacks and maligns David. And one of Nabal's servants says about Nabal, he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Are you like that where you cannot receive advice? As soon as people begin to correct, you have excuses and denials and understandings for why they're wrong. Here we see we need counsel. Recently, a pastor friend of mine commented, I fear we're being discipled more by our culture, our friends, our co-workers, our business associates, our social media contacts, than we are our local church family. Case in point, he says, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've been approached by a church member to pray with them and offer counsel on big life decisions, job changes, career shifts, relocations, retirement, major family decisions, etc., not that I would necessarily give any meaningful input or they would need to value my opinion for the sake of my ego, but I would treasure the opportunity to pray alongside my flock as they navigate the paths and trails of life. You know, what do you see of this body of believers? Are we here to just be at a joint worship service and then go our separate ways? Or has God specifically knit us so that we can give each other counsel and encouragement in life? Often I find that people come for advice when they merely want applause on their opinion. They aren't actually seeking to hear what you say. They want you to affirm them. I know one person, sadly, who would go and seek advice, seeming to follow this counsel, but he would do it until he just got the person who would agree with what they wanted in the first place. And then when that plan would fall flat. Now we and others would say, why didn't you listen to what we said? Well, this other person said, I should do this. And the point in all this is, you won't always get good advice. That's not the point. We're going to see that Rehoboam is going to follow some bad advice. But the point is, are you surrounding yourself with wise people? Are you seeking their counsel? Are you seeking their guidance? Proverbs 13:20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The wise leader listens to those under them. doesn't mean they always go with every whim. Sometimes leadership means doing things they don't want, but it should be open to hearing, open to criticism, open to serving. Rehoboam, though, shows his poor response to heeding counsel, and we see that in verses 6 through 11. He first gathers the old men who advised Solomon and asked for their counsel. And they respond that, look, if he'll be a servant to his people, then they will serve him all his days. And this counsel is really wise on two fronts. First, it's wise because it realizes the nature of giving up short term for gaining in the long term. It's the idea of delayed gratification. It's what all investing is about. I get all my money. And I don't go spend it all. I invest some, and I give up some pleasure now so that in the future I can have more enjoyment. This is what students have to know as they hear of a fun get-together and staying up late, but they know they have a test the next day. Well, it would be more fun to be with the friends. It would be more fun to be playing games. But if I do well in school, then in the future I'll have more enjoyment. Rehoboam they counsel should give up his rights. He could demand more today, but he will enjoy more later if he gives some up now. Second, 
this counsel is wise because it follows God's character. Now, yes, Jesus had not yet lived, but he showed us God's character of service. In the Gospel of Mark, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come to Jesus privately, but spoke a little too loud because they were saying, hey, would you give us the seats of honor? As you can imagine, the other ten disciples are quite upset, and they're attacking them. Why are you asking for this? But Jesus replies to them all, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I've shared before the story of how in the Revolutionary War, a civilian was riding on horseback, looking at the various things that were going on in the U.S. Revolutionary Army. And he came across a group of battle-weary soldiers digging a trench. And yet the officer in charge was making no efforts to help, but rather he was shouting orders, giving threats of punishment if the trench was not completed within the hour. Well, the horseback stranger asked, he said, why are you not helping? The officer gazed at the stranger with a contemptuous look and said, I don't have to because I'm in charge. These men do as I tell them. But if you feel so strongly about it, you're welcome to help them yourself. And so to his surprise, the stranger got off his horse, went down, and helped the men finish the trench. Before leaving, he congratulated all the men for their work, and he approached the officer, and he says, the next time your rank prevents you from supporting your own men, you should notify top command, and I will provide a more permanent solution. He then realized that he was looking at General George Washington. Service in leadership, not using his position to bark orders and tell everyone how important he was, but leadership that said, let me come alongside you and help. And George Washington it was great in doing that because he was following the creator of the universe. Who did more than get down in a ditch? Gave his life so that we might have life. However, we see that tragically, Rehoboam abandons this council and instead listens to his peers that he grew up with. We see that he was inclined this way by notice that he asked them, what shall we answer? As though we are going to give the answer, not the old men. And after hearing the best leadership advice of service, we now hear the worst leadership advice, arrogant boasts and threats. The whole mindset of beatings will continue until morale improves approach. The mindset of that officer who said, oh, I'm in charge, so you have to do what I say. And it begins with the most, it begins really with the insecure bragging that you sometimes hear in locker rooms of comparison the size of body parts. Well, I'm bigger than dad. Well, then that inane comment is followed by authoritarianism at its worst. Not only does Rehoboam say, okay, I'm not going to lighten it, but we're just going to keep it the same. I mean, he could have done that. He could have just said, no, to keep the kingdom going, I'm sorry, but we've got to keep the same workload going. No, he goes worse. He goes, actually, you want less, I'm going to give you more. You want to not be whipped, I'm going to bring out a whip that stings like a scorpion because it has things embedded into it. You know, we almost hear the faint echo of another king. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. 
Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Rehoboam is acting like Pharaoh. And yet this section presses upon us, whose counsel am I following? We're often being told, use your power, use your prestige so that you can be the boss, so you can tell people what to do to be true to yourself, seek your own best interests. And yet Jesus says we're given power, we're given prestige, not to serve ourselves, but serve others. That is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon me, upon you, sorry, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unlike Rehoboam, who threatens a harsher yoke, Jesus promises an easier one. He came to serve us. So to those under you, see you giving up rights and privileges for them, or do they see you using them for your own agenda? Does your wife or your children or your students or whoever might be under your service feel harsh authoritarianism or gentle, humble leadership? Well, Rehoboam's failure here to heed this wise counsel then leads to the rebellion that we see in verses 12 through 19. The day comes, they arrive, and he repeats the counsel he got from the young men. He's going to make their yoke heavier. He's going to make the whips hurt more. And yet then the Bible says something very interesting. In verse 15, it tells us, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The Bible is a history book unlike any other history book. The Bible has what's called an omniscient narrator. The omniscient narrator, because the Bible was not just written by men, it was inspired by God. And so they can say and tell us God's thoughts. They could say why these things occurred. As we write history, we can make educated guesses. We can look at cause and effect, but we never can definitively say this happened because God did this. And yet the Bible gives us that insight. And in this case, these events fulfilled God's promise in the chapter before this to Jeroboam. And so what happens? They hear Rehoboam's words, and they respond that they have no portion with David. Flip over to 2 Samuel, just back one book, because we're going to see that this is nothing new. It's actually long-standing conflict that's gone in this nation. What's interesting, as I was reading this, it made me think of our own Declaration of Independence that says the governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. These people did not like the governor or president or, in this case, king, so they move on. But, again, these situations have been going on for some time. 2 Samuel 2, verse 4, Saul has died. David was anointed king. But look down at 2 Samuel 2, verse 4, because there it says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Well, what about the rest of the tribes? I thought David was going to be king over all of Israel. (coughs) We'll look down at verses 8 and 9. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, 
took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made Kim king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. And for two years, Ishbosheth reigns over all of Israel, and David only over Judah. And then when Ishbosheth is removed, David rules over all Israel. We'll flip over 18 chapters to 2 Samuel 20 because David rules all over all of Israel, except then we have the coup attempt by Absalom, his son. David finally gets everyone back together, or almost, because look at 2 Samuel 20. There it says, Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. And so when we read of this in 1 Kings chapter 12, of the Israelites responding, saying, everyone to his own tents, O Israel, who cares about the house of Jesse? We see these are long-standing rivalries and tensions amongst the tribes of Israel. Why do they exist? Well, we're not exactly told. But they are there, and they've been going on for some time. Well, Rehoboam doesn't seem to fully grasp how serious the Israelites are about this. So he responds by sending Adoram to go get the workers to come back. If you look earlier in Kings, 1 Kings 4, 6, you'll see that Adoram was the person over the forced labor all the way back to King Solomon. And he goes, and we'll just say they had um, a rocky meeting. Uh, Upon seeing this rocky meeting, Rehoboam quickly gets in his chariot and gets out of town. You know, sadly, Solomon's fear in Ecclesiastes 2, 19-20 has come true, where he says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Yet he will be a master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Solomon built up the kingdom, and he's not even three days into his new reign, and he has split the kingdom in two. And yet this section raises a major issue. How do we understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility? In other words, did Rehoboam do this because God made him? Verse 15, it was the Lord's will. Or did Rehoboam do this because he chose to do it? In philosophy, you might think of this as, do we have our lives determined by fate or by freedom? Well, the Bible is very clear, though. There's no choice between sovereignty and responsibility. They go hand in hand. First, God controls every single aspect of your life because he's the creator and sustainer of it. God controls every single person who's ever put in any position of leadership. Daniel 2.20 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Not only does God control every person who's in leadership positions, and every other position for that matter, he controls them when they're in that position. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Now, God doesn't just control the major players, you might say, in the world. He controls every single aspect 
of our lives. Why do you live in Wichita Falls? Probably a question many of us has asked many times. Well, Paul tells us in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of all mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. So why do you live in 2021 and not 1821? Why do you live in Wichita Falls and not in China or Istanbul? Because God determined you would live in this day, in this place. He not only controls that, he controls your five senses. Exodus 4.11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So if you're a great speaker, because God gave it to you. If you stammer over your words, because God made you that way. God even controls the number of hairs you have and when they fall. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 through 30, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. We could go on and on. Psalm 135 declares God controls the weather. Proverbs 16 says God controls dice. And this teaching is summarized well by Job when he says in Job 121, The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says right after that, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now this amazing truth, this should be soul-liberating, peace-giving truth that God controls everything has been horribly abused. We have decided, well, we understand these things and we haven't let Scripture guide us in this because Scripture makes clear some things this doesn't mean. This does not mean that God is the author of sin. James 1 and John, 1 John 1 clearly show that God does not tempt us to sin. As well, God's control should not mean that he doesn't care as though he's just some master chess player and really gives no idea or care to the pawns or whatever other pieces. Not at all. Ezekiel 33:11 says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. God passionately cares for us. And one of the issues we have in this is we don't make clear distinctions. So let me make one. And that is we need to recognize the difference between God's will or God's sovereign control by his decree, his will of decree, and God's will of desire. So will of decree and will of desire. God's will of decree is those things that he has said will happen. He has decreed that gravity will pull things to the earth. He decreed that his son would die on the cross. Those things will happen. And yet God also has what we describe a will of desire. Those might be things like the Ten Commandments. And there he gives us a choice. That he desires that I not steal, but it's not decreed necessarily. I need to act. And we could split that even finer, but speaking broadly. And yet we often conflate these two things, God's will of decree and God's will of desire. So at times people will say, well, so-and-so just made it into office, God raised them up. And sometimes they say that as though, and so God likes them. Well, not necessarily the case. Let's use an example. Let's say Mayor Santayana, well, he's in office because God decreed it. Let's say he commits murder. Does God want him in office? Yes and no. 
by God's will of decree, yes. By God's will of desire that we should have a leader who's not a murderer, no. And so we have to understand these two things. Thus, we looked at many verses telling of God's control. We've looked at that, and we've looked at how it doesn't mean God's the author of sin, or that God delights in pain and suffering. As well, this doesn't mean we're robots or puppets with no responsibility. For in a mystery that our mind can't always grasp, God controls all, and we also have true choice and freedom in regards to our actions and within our ability. Now we need to be clear, when I say we're free, that doesn't mean in the sense of total determination. I can't choose to be a sea creature. I can't choose to fly. I have limits. But I do have the freedom. Am I going to choose to wear a red shirt, a blue shirt, or something else? I don't walk to my closet as a robot because God in heaven is moving strings saying, I decree red, and I just grab it. I don't know what I'm doing. No, there's freedom in that sense. And that's why God will hold us to account. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We all have various kinds of computers, electronics. We have televisions. There's no moral accounting for my television because it only does what I input into it. There is a moral accounting for me before God because he has given me choices. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 through 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And so we see both of these two truths, God's sovereignty and man's freedom, his responsibility displayed in Scripture. Let me give just some brief examples. Acts 2, 23, Acts 4, 20 through 20, sorry, Acts 4, 27 through 28 clearly states that God the Father decreed that Jesus would be crucified on the cross. Well, so does that mean that Herod and the other men did nothing wrong? It was God's decree? Well, no, they're responsible for what they did. John Piper summarizes this well. People lift their hand to rebel against the Most High, only to find their rebellion is unwitting service in the wonderful designs of God. Even sin cannot frustrate the purposes of the Almighty. He himself does not commit sin, but he's decreed that there be acts that are sin, for the acts of Pilate and Herod were predestined by God's plan. Or Acts 27, there's this fascinating story. Paul is going on a ship, and the ship encounters a storm, and the storm's going on for many days, and people begin to fear that they won't live, and God speaks to Paul and says, everyone will live. Well, the next day or soon after that, Paul learns that some of the men are trying to escape some of the soldiers. And Paul tells the captain of the ship, if any of these men leave, we will all perish. Well, well, how could Paul say that? How can he say, well, God told me we're all going to make it, but these men have to stay on the boat. Isn't going to happen if God decreed it? Well, Paul realizes that God's decree goes with God's means. That human responsibility is still working with God's sovereignty. One brief last example, Philippians 1.19, Paul asked the Philippian church to pray for him that he might get out of prison. And he says this, he says his deliverance would come through their prayers and the Spirit. It's both. God works through their prayers. J.I. Packer in his excellent work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes, 
C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, to each other. Spurgeon said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Packer then continues, friends? Yes, friends. This is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. So to kind of bring this all together and then move to the last section, did the kingdom split apart because of Rehoboam's folly, or did the kingdom split apart because of God's decree? And you don't need to choose. It's both. They split apart because God decreed and he knew and it would work through Rehoboam who made real choices that were foolish. And we have real choices as well, and so do they. And we see that lastly, return, verses 12, 20 through 24. Because Israel doesn't just go off to ten separate tribes, but they follow God's word of uniting Jeroboam to be king over all of them. Rehoboam at first goes and gathers an army and becomes to fight against them. And he raises quite a large army, 180,000 soldiers. Yet, before they enter combat, notice what happens in verse 22. God says to Shemaiah to go and tell them that this is from the Lord, that they shouldn't be fighting their brothers. And amazingly, which it wasn't amazing for people in Scripture to obey God's word, but it is amazing. Here they do. They listen to God, and they go home and so thus in the midst of a king who is out of touch we see the king of kings who is never out of touch he not only knows all that's going on he controls all that goes on he both punishes and rewards promises and threatens and amazingly he's not just a remote god with power and control he came in the flesh. He laid aside his robes. He bent down to serve. Serve not only by washing disciples' feet, but also serving by using those same hands to be nailed to the cross. As he said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The King of Kings humbled himself to the point of death so that he might purchase for us forgiveness of sins so that he might adopt us into his family and live with him forever and having taken on flesh and being tempted as we are yet without sin he now sympathizes with our weaknesses thus we can confidently come to god the father through him so friends as we look out and we see kingdoms falling apart don't lose heart Leaders may be out of touch. And as we'll see next week, some leaders may even lead their nations into horrible sin. Yet the king of kings is never out of touch. That's our hope. That's our confidence. And so may we end heeding the words of Isaiah that he used to comfort God's own people in exile. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and ancient things, times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. 
So may we take comfort. May we return to the King of Kings who is never out of touch. Let's pray. Lord, would we heed your word? Lord, would we listen to the counsel of others? And may we ultimately find our confidence, our hope in you. Lord, we look around and find so many people who don't care, leaders who make inept decisions, and yet you have a purpose and plan for all things. May we trust you in the good and the bad, knowing your loving and sovereign control. In your son's name we pray. Amen.